Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today is Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. I've seen fire. I've seen rain. I've seen Thomas Friedman take the greenies out to the out to the barn and cause them pain. I mean, I have got so many different stories to talk about this morning before we even get to today's uh, interview with David Limbaugh about his new book, The Resurrected Jesus. We actually had a great conversation yesterday about this book. He wrote it with his uh, daughter, Kristen Limbaugh Bloom. Uh, we got a chance to talk a little bit about, we'll talk a lot about the book, talk a lot about the gospel. I uh, didn't talk too much about politics, but we did talk about his brother Rush just a little bit. Uh, and how we both miss Rush and uh, and how everybody misses Rush. That's coming up next after this. Uh, but for today, we've got uh, some great stories up at hotair.com. None better probably than Dwayne Patterson's VIP column about the very strange decision yesterday by Joe Biden to hold a celebration of the Inflation Reduction Act on the same day that the Consumer Price <laughs> Index report was coming out. Now, I talked a little bit about this on yesterday's podcast, um, but we didn't know how bad the celebration was going to be until it actually took place. And they had James Taylor, who's a fine musician. I mean, James Taylor's been around for 50-something years, singing Fire and Rain, as, as a celebration, and anybody who's actually heard the song or sung the lyrics, and we've all sung it. I mean, Dwayne says he's sung it too. Everybody's sung it. It's, it's, it's a classic uh, ballad. It is not a celebration. The first verse it talks about suicide, uh, and it doesn't get much better from that. Um, I mean, this was, um, it, 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 this was a very odd choice. The whole thing was an odd choice. Why schedule this? On the same day that the CPI report was going to be coming out, unless you had some sort of inside knowledge that it was going to be some spectacular report, and it wasn't. <laughs> Clearly, nobody here, as Dwayne says, knows how to play this game. So you got to read the VIP column today from Dwayne because that is absolutely a ton of fun. Uh, the big stories that we are seeing in terms of traffic, well, we had um, overnight techno fog at his site, Find Site. I linked it in the headlines. Uh, John Durham's latest court filing shows that Igor Danchenko, who was uh, one of Christopher Steele's main sources, was hired by the FBI as a confidential informant after they dropped Steele for being unreliable, for his report being unreliable, and Danchenko was one of the main sources for that dossier. In fact, he was the source for a lot of what was wrong with the dossier especially up to and including the P, the infamous P-tape that, that never actually existed. So why was the FBI paying him after knowing that his information was unreliable? And, by the way, also, after having suspected him of, uh, of being a Russian intelligence operative a decade earlier, less than a decade earlier, a decade now, but um, in 2010-2011, and the answer to that is nobody's really sure, but it sure was convenient to have Danchenko uh, getting paid by the FBI while the whole Russia collusion hypothesis unraveled during the Mueller investigation. Uh, so there's more on that from Just the News' John Solomon. I wrote, I, I put this all in a post this morning. I had the Technofog um, uh, link up late yesterday in the headlines. And of course, again, I'm trying to stay on top of every all the developments uh, in uh, with the headlines, and I'm hoping that you're enjoying that uh, right now because I'm enjoying doing it. 
and I saw the, the big traffic that came off of that and, and realized that people wanted a, um, a fuller discussion of that. So I wrote this first thing in the morning. It's gotten plenty of um, it's gotten plenty of traffic today. I really appreciate everybody who's uh, there. Jonathan Turley, I've got a headline up for Jonathan Turley. His response to this, where he thinks that this smells pretty bad, and um, gives a brief explanation of why. Um, and uh, and I think we're going to have to wait for quite a while to get an explanation from the FBI. But it may wait until Republicans take control of one or both chambers of Congress and can force the FBI's um, uh, leadership to testify to this under oath as to what they were doing with Igor Danchenko and what was going on, why they were paying somebody who was known to be a bad source and suspected to be a Russian um, agent or at least a Russian um, associate um, while they're investigating the president of the United States on specious charges that he actually floated himself. Uh, it's very, very curious. It's very, very damning. And I suspect we're going to hear more about this. I don't know how much more that Durham's got. The grand jury's been apparently dismissed or it expired. And it doesn't appear that he's asking for a new grand jury. Uh, so maybe he doesn't have anything more than this. But this may be plenty, especially once it gets to Congress. And we may be waiting to see if um, Durham is going to write a report at the end of this. There was some suggestion um, a couple of years ago that Durham wasn't interested in writing a report. That the indictments that he filed would... Um, basically cover whatever it was that he was um, finding, but we'll see. Uh, we've got uh, a, new call, a, new, a new post up as I'm recording this. I just wrote this. Um, Thomas Friedman uh, takes the greenies to task. He also does a little bit of a pox on both houses by taking Republicans to task. Uh, but basically, he's unhappy that the progressives in the Senate and, and in the House are not going to vote for Chuck Schumer. Uh, Chuck Schumer's deal with Joe Manchin to expand uh, resources for pipelines and, and transmission lines, uh, calling it absurd. That it's absurd. To, the idea that you can get rid of fossil fuels at this stage is absurd. Um, and he explains why, and especially because the strategic uh, issues in play at the moment require us to really start producing oil and natural gas in large enough quantities to have a strategic impact on Vladimir Putin, Iran, you know, all of the different malefactors and that our national security depends on this. Uh, and I find it interesting that Thomas Friedman is writing that at the New York Times. <laughs> I've been writing that for two years. <laughs> We've been making this argument for two years. And we haven't gotten a whole lot of support for this uh, from the New York Times or from, frankly, anyone in the media. But it's very obvious that if we produce more gas and oil, oil and then, you know, gasoline, natural gas, that uh, the more we can export that, especially to Europe, which really needs it at the moment, and that's one of Friedman's main points, the lower the spot prices become on the market, which means the less profit Vladimir Putin can make, and for that matter, uh, Iran can make. And that means that you are having a strategic impact on their ability to conduct uh, violent operations elsewhere, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in the Middle East, uh, it it would reduce their abilities to uh, create problems. We had that ability when Joe Biden took office. Joe Biden chose to throw in with the Greenies and uh, use his uh, Executive Order 13990 to impose all sorts of costs and red tape on oil and natural gas uh, exploration and extraction. Uh, and as a result, as a result, you know the futures markets wisely deduced that we weren't going to be competing anymore <laughs> and the prices shot up 
and especially as demand shot up, uh, this is uh, this is part of the really bad economics of the Biden administration, but it goes further than that. And Friedman's right. It does go further than that. As far as the Republicans not signing on to the little scummy side deal that Joe Manchin uh, cut with uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, they, they don't want to sign on to that because it's a cover your ass deal. It's only for the short term. It's not going to last. And what Republicans want is an actual coherent energy policy that makes sense. And all of the above energy policy. Yes, we want to do renewables, but yes, we also want to continue to use fossil fuels because that's primarily how we're going to um, supply the grid, especially as we're bringing more uh, more items onto the grid to power up. There's a big story in the New York Times today, for instance, about the transformation of New York City's buildings from heating oil to electricity. Well, that's great. And, and honestly, I mean, it's, it makes sense because heating oil distribution is, is not easy. Uh, it is messy. Uh, it, it, it has, it creates its own problems. And it would be better to either have that uh, buildings on either natural gas or electricity, one or the other. But in order to get those buildings transferred to the electrical grid, and this is something that the New York Times mentions way down in the article, you have to have the electricity uh, available to power it up. And right now, it's mostly coming through, a, a, it's mostly coming through fossil fuels in much more efficient production means. It's much more efficient to use oil and natural gas um, uh, to generate electricity on a large scale than it is to put heating oil in each of these individual buildings. Uh, it's just the, the, the carbon, there's carbon capture. There's all sorts of ways to do it more cleanly when you do it on scale. Uh, and especially because you're not dealing with 100 year old appliances, but um, you, you can't, you can't expect that to work if you're not generating the electricity, if you're not adding that capacity to your electrical grid. And so Friedman's Friedman's, scolding is well taken so yes that's that's something that we definitely want to keep an eye on we got the producer price index out today um down just a little bit in august month on month but that's primarily due to the uh to a significant drop in gasoline prices which the ppi report flat out says um prices outside if you if you take that out of the calculations prices rose in almost every single category Except for food, which is actually not bad news, but I suspect that is probably also temporary. And if you look at the year-on-year, -year, it's still 8.7% year-on-year. And uh, the um, producer price index on services is ticking up pretty significantly. So it looks like inflation is now starting to infect the services sector, uh, at least on the you know producer price index. That's not great news either. Uh, so lots of other stuff coming on, uh, coming up here too. Uh, Jazz has a fun post about the Emmy ratings. By the way, that was really good, and he's got a really good post on Joni Ernst. Um, David Strom has one on Bill Maher and Aaron Rodgers's conversation, um, and um, that was interesting. You should read David Strom's take on it. It's very, very good. Um, it's an, it's definitely an interesting exchange. And I think you'll be very interested in reading more about that. Plenty more coming from Karen Townsend, from Beach Wellborn, myself, uh, Jazz. John Sexton hasn't even teed up anything yet. So stay tuned because he's going to have some great posts up today as well. John Sexton at Viram Serum if you're 
If you're wondering what he's going to have coming up, <clears throat> he'll tell you right on Twitter. So stay tuned next. Again, David Limbaugh talking about his book that he co-authored with his daughter, Kristen Limbaugh Bloom, The Resurrected Jesus and uh, The Church in the New Testament and <clears throat> the great conversation that he and I had yesterday about the book. And by the way, we got another book conversation coming up later this week. <clears throat> Libby Sternberg and I had a great conversation about her new book, uh, which is a which is going to uh, take a look at The Great Gatsby, take a new look at The Great Gatsby. It's a novel. You're going to appreciate it. That'll be Friday's podcast. But today, David Limbaugh and uh, The Resurrected Jesus. I'm Ed Morrissey. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me now as a good friend of mine, David Limbaugh, who has co-written a new book with his daughter, uh, Kristen Limbaugh Bloom. And I have the book right here in my hot little hands, The Resurrected Jesus, The Church in the New Testament. It's right here. Look at that. Great looking book right there. And this is about, um, uh, David, this is about focusing on uh, this part of your Jesus series of books. And it's this is yeah. focusing on Paul and seven of his epistles. And I, I, I find this really a fascinating approach, especially to Paul, because I think Paul is just such an, a, a, a really interesting, uh, I, I want to say character. I mean, he's a real person. I don't want to say character, but he's a really interesting figure in the transformation of Christianity uh, from sort of an insular uh, group to a worldwide church. And I think you capture this in uh, The Resurrected Jesus. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for having me on. You've always been a good buddy. From the uh, the first, the last Christian book, Christian themed book, and this is the fifth, was Jesus is Risen. And it was about the Apostle Paul, was well, first about the book of Acts, the history of the early church, and then the Apostle Paul's first six epistles. This continues along those lines. The Apostle Paul's final seven epistles, because he wrote 13 in all. These right. are four of them were the prison epistles, which he wrote uh, while under house arrest in Rome. And then the three pastoral epistles that he wrote to his colleagues and understudies, Timothy and Titus. So Paul was the least likely person ever to become a Christian, much less a Christian evangelist, because he was a persecutor of Jew, uh, of Christians as an Orthodox Jew. And he thought that Christians were deviating from, from the true religion and blaspheming. And he was on his, on his way to round some up in Damascus when he was hit by Jesus Christ in a, in a miraculous vision and experience. It wasn't just a vision. Christ appeared to him, blinded him, and he shortly converted thereafter and became uh, uh, appropriated that zeal that he had for Judaism to Christianity and his energy and his fearlessness. He, he planted churches throughout the Mediterranean basis and elsewhere. And these letters deal with churches he planted who were now subject to false teachers, false doctrine, who were deviating from the pure gospel that he taught them. So he writes these letters to instruct them, to correct them, to get them back on the right track. Little did he know, probably, that he was writing scripture, what would end up becoming part of scripture and part of the canon, the biblical canon. But he was writing these uh, letters to the churches in real time. The Bible isn't some abstract book of moral principles. While it contains, obviously, principles for Christian living and the rest. It's involves, it's, it's, it's told through the story of real people who are experiencing real struggles 
and real difficulties. And why does this happen when I have my phone off? Happens happens to me all the time, David. <laughs> I think it's because my watch, my watch triggers it. I, I think oh. my Apple Watch. Sorry about that. But Paul never had to deal with Apple Watches. Paul I think, never had to deal I with think that. Paul was happier. I think Paul was happier not having to I deal think, with I, Oh my gosh. But but the thing is, uh it, it's really encouraging to see, ironically, a guy that's as as great an evangelist as Paul turned out being still struggling. And that gives some us, us encouragement. Well, why do I struggle as a Christian? Well, the greatest Christian ever. I mean, Christ wasn't a Christian. Christ was Christ. Right. Really, the greatest, unbelievable was Paul, uh, the greatest evangelist. And yet he experienced, and he's telling us about him. The Bible tells us about these people, warts and all. The new warts and all. The New Testament writers don't hide their flaws, which makes it all the more believable. But in these letters to the churches, he's correcting them and he's He's instructing them in Christian doctrine. Now they're still here for us 2,000 years later to give us correct doctrine. And, and uh, that's what we go to as scripture among the rest of the new and old. You know, I, I have so many questions to ask you, and we've got a limited amount of time. But I, I want to just touch on the thing that you just mentioned, which is that you get warts and all views of uh, of Paul, certainly in, in his epistles. But it's true of, and you say, it's true of all of the different disciples. We see a warts and all depiction after all of Thomas, right? Who yeah. is denying that, you know, all of his friends are telling the exact same story, all 11 of them, plus, you know, the women who are in the room are telling me the exact same story. He's like, ah, I'm not going to believe any of you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You. you know, um, and until Jesus appears and says, you know, put your fingers in the wounds. And um, and then, of course, he sees and we hear, we, we get the you know, the, the lovely, uh, teaching of, you know, blessed are they who have not seen and still believe. Yeah. Um, but you know, the one that really strikes me and it's always struck me is Peter denying Christ three times on the first night of the passion, Yeah. because the only possible source for that story was Peter himself. There you go. And he, and he felt it was important for people to understand that he had betrayed Christ three times. And of course you get the again, a, a lovely sort of book end where Christ asks him three times, do you love me? And yes. as of extracting that out. And they understood <laughs> that they needed to make sure that people knew that they were not supermen, that they were flawed individuals, but still could, but still could be saved through Christ and through grace. Glad you, glad you picked up on that parallel or, or mentioned that parallel. Cause not everybody does about him, Jesus persisting do you really love me? it's almost like he's taunting him well then why did yeah. why did you deny me three times i'm going to make you affirm your love for me three times kind of in a way it's a weird sense of humor thing god has a sense of humor by the way otherwise we wouldn't right and uh, and, and so i i i think that's so true and but but and it also helps us uh and I, I repeat this point if peter can go through it and my gosh if you read peter's peter's epistles no one could be closer to god and yet he denied him denied him and and, and would, would betrayed him literally not like judas did but he in, in a different way and yet he celebrated see that's another thing doesn't it tell us about god's christ's forgiveness and his redemptive plan if somebody can just betray him right to his face and spit on him in effect and yet he still loves him it transcends and he uses him for good paul was his biggest persecutor. When Paul, when Jesus encountered Paul on Damascus Road, he didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Yep. That's profound. And yet persecuted him and he loved him and he converted him into a lover of himself 
and a person who would go out, he would use him to reach the rest of us throughout uh, history, human history. And, you know, David, when I was reading this, this part of the book, right, and I haven't gotten all the way through the book, but I, I, you know, I've certainly been trying to, to, to well, get... that's it, I'm leaving. I'm... Well, you know, of course, you know, <laughs> Ed, do your, do your homework, man. Um, but, but it, this is part of the thing that strikes me, because on this point, especially, is that Christ recognized Paul's gifts, two yep. of his main gifts, right? One was his um, one was his zeal and his energy, which you've already mentioned. But the other oh. is is his intellectual yeah. uh, capacity for seizing on the important details of of the faith. Now he was misapplying that yep. as Saul, right? And you know yep. the whole you know episode with Saint Stephen and, and and all the other persecutions, and you know this is, literally has blood on his soul by the time Christ comes to him. Yep. But Christ recognizes that he has these particular gifts. And of course, then Paul writes about gifts beautifully in, in his epistles. But um, but he comes to him because he's got those two particular gifts, reveals himself to Paul's heart. Paul falls in love with Christ. Um, the scales fall from his eyes, um, you know, literally in the text. Um, and those gifts are then put to the proper use for, for God and for the people of the world, which is, again, the zeal. He expands the church enormously all on his own well not, not on his own i mean there's obviously other people involved in this and i'm gonna get back to that too but but he is the the greatest expander of the church in that time and he's also its um greatest um uh doctor if you will and in yeah. this gets to what, what you're talking about in that first chapter about colossians about correcting the the um you know correcting the heresies you know Later in the church, you'd have people spend their whole lives correcting one heresy. Right, right, right. And yet here's Paul taking on a number of these heresies, some of which are fully formed, some of which are proto-heresies, which get further developed and keep repeating down the road. But Paul's addressing all of them. Yep. Yeah, like Gnosticism, which we saw its forerunner in the first century. And what that basically was, was people who thought matter, physical matter, was evil, inherently evil. Therefore, Christ could not have been a human. Well, Christian doctrine is Christ is perfectly God, 100% God, divine, and 100% human. And he right. had to have been human. God made him, the Father made him a human being so he could come to earth, suffer the indignities of human existence, die for us on the cross, and then be physically bodily resurrected so that we, in his wake, could be bodily resurrected as well uh, through faith in him. And so, yeah, it, it's 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 pretty it's pretty encouraging when you think about all that and Paul's intellectual capacity his zeal and his passion for truth keep in mind he was worshiping Yahweh who is the god who is right. the god we worship it's just that he didn't understand all the manifestations of the holy trinity but it was not he was he misapprehended Christ because the Jew, a lot of the Jews at the time expected a military conqueror as the messiah they didn't expect the irony the paradox of the Messiah coming down and not only not conquering the physical world, but letting the physical world kill him. He physically died, but in the process, he conquered Satan, sin, and death on a spiritual level, That, but but they didn't catch that. By the way, I'm not here in judgment. If I were in their position, I probably wouldn't have gotten it either. It's, right. it's, kind, of, it's kind of difficult to see these things, but but as you said, he was converted and, and did more to evangelize than anybody in, in church history. Isn't that amazing too? I mean, 
certainly the 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 original apostles you know minus obviously judas iscariot the original apostles were were you know very um very close to christ obviously very close to christ and they did uh enormously good work on their own yeah but isn't it interesting that this particular mission wasn't chosen for one of the original 11 that accompany accompany christ now of course peter later goes to rome as well and and helps and helps found the 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 church in rome but um but other than that, I mean, and we hear, you know, there's there's traditions about Andrew and Thomas and where they went, but you don't hear this massive, you don't see this massive expansion from anybody else other than Paul. And I just find it fascinating that that was a mission that Christ gave to somebody who wasn't walking with yeah. him and, during, and, during his original mission. And who didn't technically qualify as an apostle because an apostle had to walk with Christ in his earthly ministry and witness his resurrection at the time. Yes. Paul didn't either. However, there's one thing he did do. Christ appointed him. Christ right. did appear to him later. He went not during his earthly ministry, but when in, in, in his appearance to, to Paul. And I, I dare say that Christ, the king of the universe, has the authority to suspend his rules uh, when it comes to anything, and he's, as long as they're consistent with his truth, which they are. Right, and so right. it's, awesome, it's awesome that he chose Paul and not Peter and the rest. But I think he, even in Peter's writings, Peter will say, Peter was deferential to Paul. He goes, some of Paul's writings are difficult to understand. I think they were in awe. These guys were fishermen. They weren't intellectuals, which is another cool thing about the Christian religion. About he chose Jesus chose ordinary people, poor people, fishermen, ordinary just not intellectual, but Paul was an intellectual. And, and, and there's another reason he chose it. He was steeped in the Old Testament and the, the Bible is integrated. Uh, yep. Old Testament points to Christ. That was one of the purpose of my book, the Emmaus Code, all the prophecies. Paul knew that more intimately than anyone else uh, for, for the, at the time. And so it was, he, he had all these attributes and qualities that made him the perfect apostle to, to, to the Gentiles. So, the Colossians, he's dealing a lot with heresy in in Colossians, and you know, in other epistles, by the way, I mean, he's also a disciplinarian too, um, you know, where, where he's had to tell you know, yeah. tell people basically to knock it off. Uh, he's a very he's very involved. He's very rigorous. Rigorous was the word I was looking for earlier. He's very he, rigorous. Very, he's very rigorous. Absolutely, and it, is, it also says something else. There's a lot of people who just say, "I pray." I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to pray as a Christian. And that always has bothered me. Christ acts through us as his messengers, as his instruments, as his agent. Paul wrote about the fact that he had to do something. He had to get off his duff and help. God wasn't going to do it. Well, he's going to do it beyond the, the, the human agents, but he also operates through us. We have an affirmative duty to be obedient and, and spread the word. We're called in the Great Commission to spread the word. If it would spread by itself, only he wouldn't have called us to that great commission. And so Paul does it, and uh, but he's he's adamant about correcting these heresies in the early church and the Judaizers who would say, it's not salvation by faith alone, it's salvation by faith plus circumcision, plus adherence to the Jewish rituals. Paul said, that's fine. You can, you can be circumcised. You can adhere to those rituals, but don't you dare say that had anything to do with your salvation because that's right. through faith in Christ. So, yeah. Yeah, another thing you write about in the book is the fact that Paul was really setting up the structure for this 
you know, massive expansion of the faith. And we talked a little bit uh, already. And I find this remarkable for, for a reason. I, I've, I've read different analyses about how that first generation, especially, I think especially the apostles that were, you know, that were around Jesus during his earthly ministry, didn't expect that, they expected to see Christ return in their own lifetimes, in their own natural lifetimes. And uh, it certainly that didn't prevent them from working hard, from spreading, from spreading the word, trying to let people know the kingdom of, of God is upon us. Uh, in fact, maybe it even helped motivate that. I think alone, though, at least from what you read among the apostles, um, or you know the the uh, the epistles and 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 Acts of the apostles, I wouldn't say alone, but I think remarkably, Paul seems to be the only one who is really seeing that this is going to be the long haul, right? That this is not, it's, Christ is not going to return in the fall of Jerusalem, which takes place about a generation after, um, after the passion, uh, but that this is something that is going to have to be structured for, uh, for a perpetual church until, until God finally does decide um, that, the, that the end of time has arrived and, and um, judgment day is, here and uh and i i love the dog too by the way the dog just i love dogs <laughs> I agree. but but he i mean I, but he's a christian he is a christian there you yeah. go um but i i find that remarkable that paul seems to be the one at least from the scriptures that is the most clear-eyed about the necessity of structuring something that's going to last you know i really hadn't thought about that that's a very good point very good point and yeah, there is there are a lot of people who read scripture and say Jesus meant literally I'm coming back in this generation. And then others say, well, he meant that kind of figuratively uh, generation in the sense of this era of human existence could be 3000 years. And I happen to believe that scripture is inerrant and it's inspired by God, all of it. Right. So I, I choose I choose to I have not I'm not troubled by those kinds of Bible apparent Bible difficulties, but. But I, I think you're right. Paul did have that view. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been so strict about all these things and so adamant. He was writing these things, uh, I instructions, as if they were to apply for the long haul. I think you're, that's a great insight. Also, he was training in uh, the new generation of leadership in the church, which you do point out in the book. Yes. <clears throat> and, and um, you know, he was, he's looking for the people who were going to lead the churches into the next generation. And then, and then of course, the generation beyond that. <clears throat> And of course, we also have apostolic succession that we begin to see in Acts of the Apostles right off the bat, in fact. Um, yeah. But but he's looking for that next generation of leadership on which those successions can fall. And it mattered because um, to the extent that the gospel is diluted or to the extent that there is corruption in the church hierarchy, uh, the entire system may break down and if either doctrinally or, or formationally. And if that happens, uh, you you compromise the spread of the gospel uh, yep. in its recipiency. And of course it's meant for all of mankind. And, and uh, that's why Paul was adamant and he, and he wasn't, he didn't mince words in these, in these letters and people should read them if they're not familiar. That's one reason we write these books is to uh, introduce people and make the scripture less intimidating for people who are heretofore not really wanting to delve, wanted to delve into it. I, I'm just going to hold this up again right there the resurrected jesus by david limbaugh and Kristen limbaugh bloom which i want to i want to talk about the 
I want to talk about the partnership in just a moment, but there's a couple more points I want to get to in the book first. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that we tend to really uh, overlook, I, I want to say overlook, maybe avoidance is, is a better word about it. The idea of spiritual warfare, the idea that there's spiritual warfare that's going <laughs> on around us. It's a spiritual warfare that is really part of who and what we are. And Paul brings that home in a certain way. And I'd say that maybe in his era, maybe even up till maybe a century ago or so, nobody would have a problem grasping that. And the reason why I bring this up, I forget what the context was, but I was reading something because I was on the internet and I shouldn't be, but it's my job. Uh, <laughs> I was reading something about talking about Christian extremists. And one of the descriptions of Christian extremists that was used was, well, they believe in spiritual warfare. It's like, Name me a Christian who doesn't believe in spiritual warfare. I mean, I'm actually not aware that any any such Christians exist. Maybe there are, and I just don't know it. But spiritual warfare is is literally woven into the scriptures. It's woven into the gospel. Uh, you know, Christ Himself. Uh, you know, exercise can, demons. Exercise demons. Yes. So, I mean. <laughs> I'm, I, I saw that, that, you know, I saw it in your book. I was thinking, I got to ask David about this. I mean, when you see things like that, well, it's an extreme, it's, it's Christian extremism to think about spiritual warfare. I mean, how do you even start with that? Well, it's political extremism to uh, support the mainstay of the Republican Party now, according to half, half the people. Well, true, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's unbelievable. But but so uh, spiritual warfare, I, I, I used to not even believe in the devil, you know, before I became a believer. And one of the things that, tip the scales, the balance of the scales for me to become a Christian, ironically, was the pervasiveness of evil we see in the world. There's no other explanation for it than the biblical worldview uh, and the, the, the struggle between good and evil. And I, I think it's particularly relevant for our times. Paul said, you know, the real forces at work are the principalities of darkness. Behind the, the physical world are these, these demons and angels working in, in counterpoise. And, and uh, you have to be aware of that. So you have to put on the whole armor of God, meaning you need to exercise the spiritual disciplines, go to God in prayer, go to the, the scripture, become closer to God and empower yourself through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, so that you'll be able to withstand the temptations of the flesh, the, the temptations from the external world uh, and pride and the rest of it. Right. But Paul was basically saying, that it's real and you've got to be aware of it. And I think what we see in the modern era, fast forwarding, I have no other explanation to an entire group of people, not just condoning grudgingly, but glorifying evil in the form of the murdering of babies, the yep. mutilation of children, the killing of kids coming who from fentanyl that comes across the border and saying that Inclusiveness, inclusiveness is really exclusiveness and vice versa, distorting the language so that we've got intellectual and moral chaos. And you cannot reason with these people. You can't, that their ideas about environmentalism, which is an idol to them, you, you, you can't reason with them because they're, it, it's a religion to them, leads me to no other conclusion than it is, there are spiritual forces, dark forces at work. And I'm not saying anybody on the political left is dark, I'm saying they are, a lot of them are under the spell of dark forces, 
uh, they think we're personally evil. I don't think they are personally evil. I think they're under right. some some uh, spiritually dark forces because you can't approach them. Just reach across the aisle. What are you, you going to reach across the aisle for? They hate our guts. You're not going to. And they 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 want to tear down America as founded. And what we need to do, as Russ used to say, is defeat them and and uh, and, and stand up for what is true and right and do it unashamedly. And so, but I, I don't think people that, that deny the supernatural uh, are realistic. We can't explain the very existence of the universe without resort to the supernatural. None of these new atheists, brilliant as they are, uh, can explain the, the existence of matter from non-matter or life from inanimate objects. They can't explain it. And so instead they defer and deflect and say, well, it came from multiverse or from aliens. Well, who created them? It's preposterous right. the positions they take. As preposterous as now the the environmentalists having the uh, uh, the electric car owners power their uh, cars with gas power generators because they burdened the electrical grid. You can't make this stuff up. Right. <laughs> and and so they're they're objectively crazy. That is, their ideas are objectively yeah. crazy. And, and by the way, I don't believe in man-made global warming. I, I don't care if that makes me look like a fool. It's all politicized. It's all Marxism is behind it. I know a lot of people believe it. But for the people that say they believe it, even if there is man-made global warming, the studies show you can't change the mean uh, global temperature more than a degree in 100 years, even if we implement the draconian Kyoto Treaty so, protocol. So what's the point? What, what, what's the point of exercising, implementing these draconian measures in the United States when you go out and get your oil from another country that's not implementing it. And so it'll hurt you, it, it'll help them. And it's even worse from that. Because if global warming is true, if climate change is true, if the, if the uh, greenhouse effect is true, it's a global phenomenon. So everything right. they do is just as bad. So it does, and carbon credits, like indulgences in the art. What, what is wrong with these people? Anyway, <laughs> I don't have to sit there and say, I accept it. I don't have to sit here yeah. and say, I accept macro evolution from Darwinism when we know the fossil record doesn't show it. But so many people doesn't support it. We have so many people in our generation who don't have the courage to stand up. We have people on Fox who go, yeah, climate change is terrible. We do have to move toward green energy, but we just have to be more realistic. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I don't think we do need to move toward it. You can do all you want with and move toward green energy if you want, if, if, if that's what makes you happy. But in the meantime, you're going to impoverish people, and it's already happening. And people are going to die in, in Europe uh, from the cold, and then that's going to trickle over into what we're doing as well. And and again, I mean, this all you know, a lot of this goes back to the spiritual warfare that we that we talk about as Christians, and I think that the idea that that's some somehow extreme is an indictment of the people who whose ideologies simply can't keep up. Yeah, I know. I, I, by the way, I resent you constantly trying to uh, uh, gear me back to my book and promoting when I want to rant about politics. I mean, what are you doing here? My daughter hears this interview. She's going to divorce me from this book. Why don't you talk about the book? Well, I don't know. Can't well, let's talk about your daughter, because this is I think this is the coolest aspect of the book. Of course, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus yeah. by David Limbaugh and Kristen Limbaugh Bloom. And that's your daughter. And how cool is it to write a book with your daughter, especially a book about 
about the scriptures and about Paul's epistles. I mean, I just have to think that that is just um, an amazing experience. I have to say, I'm I'm kind of proud of myself for this idea. <laughs> My non-Christian pride. No, but I really love this because she's she's a good writer and she's spirit-filled person, prayer warrior. She writes sometimes op-eds for Christian op-eds for Fox News, and I, she loves right. writing. I want to help give her a jump start into the book writing world because I know she aspires to that. Like just like so many doors were open for me by Rush and Sean Hannity and Ben and everybody else, I probably without whom I probably never would have been able to write a book. You know, you can have be the best writer in the world, not that I am, and, and get anywhere. I represent. I'm, one of my hats I wear is I'm an agent, entertainment lawyer. People come to me. Fifty people kind of try to get their books. Not nah, unless they have some platform. Look out! Impossible. It's sometimes you know, do have a platform. I mean, a platform. honestly, I, I I got a I got a book deal for going red on the basis of platform. Turns out that platform doesn't necessarily sell a ton of books. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? It's just amazing how people are really this, yeah. competitive it is. And so I brought her in on it, but it. I knew she would help make the book better, but she made it so much better. Not only does she contribute to the text and we go back and forth, and we didn't separate chapters. Like you do one chapter, I'll do the next. I don't think that works. I've never had a collaborator or a ghostwriter. I've always done the research and writing myself in my books. Right. But we, we, I write the beginnings of it. Then she, I give it to her. She gives her ideas. She edits, she adds, she adds substantive stuff. But what she uh, uh, originally authored in this book which I think is the best part of it. It kills me to say that I'm even competitive with my kids um, is, is the <laughs> prayers because she's so, oh, yeah. she has such a facility for prayers. And th so throughout the text, we've, we've added prayers. She, she wrote them and I added them and back and forth. Back. And, and she, it's just, she's gifted. It's her gift, one of her gifts. And I think it helps the reader interact with the prayer, with the text, with the Bible and and it helps their it will help their daily walk and it'll help them understand the scripture better. And I'm really proud of her for doing it. She wouldn't brag about it. You're not supposed to brag about these things. You're not supposed to pray in public so you can have accolades. You're not supposed to give to the poor to show how look how great I am. It's got to it's like you do right. things closed door. She is not bragging about herself. I'm bragging about her, which is a, a father's prerogative, I think. Absolutely. And, absolutely. Yeah, and and, and yeah. a partner's prerogative, right? Your partner's yeah. in this book. And so absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and and my wife is, as has been was a prayer warrior. I wasn't even a believer when we got married. And she kept praying for my salvation, and uh, it eventually yielded fruit. So I, I think this is a uh, and and Kristen, along with our other uh, four other uh, five kids total, uh, it's a it's it's great. And we raised them as Christians. And what she's doing now is is really gratifying to me. And I she's working for God, and she does it every day of her life. And I'm really proud of her. And she makes this book qualitatively different better than my previous books and it kills me to say it <laughs> well i and i gotta tell you too i really appreciated the dedication page to your brother rush um i know that you two were very close um he was a good friend to me uh you know i wouldn't say that we were hanging out at the golf course type of friends but when i was in trouble he reached out to me to help me out and we had a really nice you know, correspondence, you know, <laughs> correspondence over the years that followed. And I still have his last email saved in my starred folder just so I can find it when I want to see it. Um, That's cool. 
so it is really nice to see that. And I, you know, I, I, I just, I think it sort of ties together that whole family thing. And, um, and I, I know that you guys have really had a hard time uh, with him being gone as, as, as have we all. And this is a nice way to bring Rush into this as well. And I was, uh, I was very appreciative of that. Thank you. And thanks for saying that. Yeah. You were Captain Ed to him, right? Oh yeah. 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 And, and, and yeah, he spoke affectionately fondly of you. And I, I, uh, no, and I also, I want to say, and I totally, uh, there's been a void since Rush is gone. It's like, I think about him all the time. I got to tell him about this. Oh, can't, he's gone, you know, every day, multiple times. Now it's less than it used to be, but a year and a half later, but still there. But what I also wanted to do, and I did, I think, as I recall, in that dedication is dedicated also to his fans, because I've been so overwhelmed since his death to see what a extended family it is. They didn't just think, oh, this is a guy that says what I believe, and I like that. It's mutually supportive. They really felt like he was in their homes every day and he was having a conversation with them. They knew him intimately. Thousands, I bet thousands have told me in email, text, DMs on Twitter, he is the best friend I never met. So yep. I, it, it, it's so gratifying to me. And by the way, I didn't really know that to the extent until after he died. I yeah. knew how great he was. I knew I believe what his fans loved him. I didn't know how intimate they felt. What do you mean? I'm his brother. Shut up. You're not family. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I love it. Cause if he's their family and I'm their family, I, right. you, I think how warm that makes me feel. Yeah. It's like we're all part of it. And, and they love him. You can't believe on Twitter. I mean, to this day, I bet if you went through my Twitter mentions, you'd find five a day. People saying can't, I, I, I just can't, I, I miss rush so bad. I can't stand it. What would he say? Oh, shit. I don't know what he, actually, I do know what he would say. He would say exactly what I'm thinking. Although he would say it in a more creative, innovative way. That's why I always hated it. <laughs> and entertaining and full oh, of Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, oh. that's what people, that's what people missed about Rush. People who didn't get Rush didn't understand how much <laughs> fun he was having and how much fun he made it for everybody else. And, and through all that, yeah, that. You, you wouldn't believe how generous he was to me, to my, to my to family. <laughs> yeah, to you. He just big, big, big heart, which he said in one of the last interviews, my ever growing heart is growing deeper for God every day. And I love that, too, because with with his God uses evil for good sometimes and cancer is an evil. And he used God uh, Rush's cancer to bring to draw him closer to himself. And he was more uh, direct about his relationship with Christ as as he got nearer to death. And I think that was moving to me and certainly to so many other people. Well, I got to tell you, I think it's great to see that in the book. And I think it's great to see the next generation of Limbaugh's stepping up here with you, um, David Limbaugh and Kristen Limbaugh Bloom, the resurrected Jesus, the church in the New Testament. I'm covering up part of the title there. I'm trying to stretch my fingers out. Sorry about that. But uh, you can get this now. It's available. You can get it uh, anywhere fine books are sold. You can also go to Amazon. I'll have a link in the show post when we put this up. Uh, David, thank you so much for being um, uh, part of today's show. It's so great to talk to you. I, I hope we get a chance to do it a little bit more often in the future. You too, Ed. It's been a real honor, a real treat. Thanks for your support, and thanks for asking us on. Well, we'll be right back with just another message from the Ed Morrissey Show right after this. Thank you for watching and listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support The Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member, too. 
Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.